Morning, everybody. Uh, I have a few just general comments to make, so if you're in line, don't worry about it. Uh, you'll have time to get to the table and get to your notes. But we welcome you uh, this year. It's great to have a, I think this is our 20th year of Amen or something like that. And uh, we've been studying various books of the Bible each year. And it's a real pleasure to have guys from all different kind of backgrounds. Some of you have church backgrounds, some of you don't. Some of you belong to a church, some of you don't. And uh, we really appreciate that. We love the diversity of those of you who do go to church. You go over to many different denominations. I think a little over half of this group is uh, not from Second Presbyterian Church. So Second Presbyterian men are usually a minority of this group. We like it that way uh, because there's a diversity of opinion. And when you're all talking and you're sharing your own opinions about things, uh, uh, it, you'll be coming from different perspectives. It also gives me a right to trample on just about everybody by the time the year's over. You know, hit the Baptists, you know, the Christian Church, the Roman Catholics, the Episcopalians. We love the Episcopalians, don't we, guys? We hammer them all the time. And uh, then, you know, of course, the, my favorite target is the Presbyterians. <coughs> we make a lot of jokes about them. So uh, you'll probably, you know, your, your, your denomination will get addressed probably at some point this year, especially going through a book like Romans. Uh, but what we do in this study, uh, if you've not been with us before, we just like to go through verse by verse. Uh, over this year, these 16 chapters of Roman will, Romans will hit every word. Uh, we may not spend a lot of time on every word, but sometimes we'll spend so much time on every word, you'll think, how are we possibly going to get through this book? But we'll go through every word in the text, and we'll go into order, and it's just a simple Bible study. That's what it is. There's nothing fancy about it at all. Uh, there are some people in this room who are preachers. There are some people in this room who have, uh, are lay teachers who have been at it for a long time and know a lot about the Bible. Most of us feel like we don't know very much. So if you don't know anything, you're going to fit right in <laughs> because there are lots of guys here who feel like they really don't know very much about the Bible and they're glad to be here on Thursdays just to be begin to, to build our knowledge of the Bible. And the reason we do that, of course, is we believe the Bible is God's Word. And so if you want to know what God thinks about something, wouldn't that be great? God, what do you think? Well, he's actually told us what he thinks, and it's in this book. Uh, this book is written by a number of different men through centuries. You have the Old Testament, which was written before Jesus Christ, and the New Testament, which was written by his apostles largely after Jesus Christ. So you have two different epochs that you're dealing with. We're going to be in the New Testament this year, but as you'll find out, the New Testament is built upon the Old Testament. And you can't really understand the New Testament without some Old Testament knowledge. So we'll be making reference to the Old Testament during our studies because it's necessary to understand any New Testament book. Now, in the New Testament, there are 27 books. And out of those 27 books, 21 of them are letters. 13 of those letters are written by Paul. And we're going to be studying one of those letters by the Apostle Paul. Letters have their own a literary structure. We'll be talking about that in a few moments. You need to know about structure so that you understand why things are written the way they are in that letter. It helps us to understand what it means for us today. Our goal when we study the Bible is, of course, to gain knowledge about what the author said and to walk through it and see if we can understand what did he actually say in the first century A.D. But we're also more interested in what God is saying to us today. So we'll look clearly at what the Apostle Paul was saying in his day to these Roman Christians, but we'll also be careful to look at what he's saying to us today. Now, in order to do that at our best, it's helpful to have some discussion about it. This uh, session in here is largely monologue because we're such a big group 
uh, there's just it's not practical for us to have Q&A in here, except afterwards sometimes I'll, I'll talk with you privately if you have certain questions. Uh, I'll just, I'm uh, hanging up around here if you, if you want to ask questions or make comments. But we do have discussion groups, uh, small groups, and uh, next week or the week after, we'll be talking about how you can be formed in one of those groups, and we would highly encourage it. You can see from the discussion questions that have been passed out to you that every week we devise discussion questions that we think will be helpful to lead you through a discussion of, of the text that we studied uh, that morning. Some of the groups like to meet right after this session. That's usually the older guys who don't have to get to work early in the morning. Uh, but there, other groups will meet in the evening on Thursday or they'll meet sometime later on during the week. You can meet anytime you want to. Feel free to use these discussion questions. Now you'll notice in those discussion questions that they're broken out, first of all, uh, in what we call the discussion questions, and then there's going deeper questions. And let me just say the reason for those going deeper is we start to get personal in the going deeper level, and some of the discussion groups want, uh, you know, how men are. You know, we don't, we don't like to disclose unless we feel like we know these people fairly well, so you may not want to answer some of those going deeper questions in your group, although we hope you will eventually feel free to talk about how this affects you personally. So those going deeper questions are meant to help you actually take the meaning of the text and work it into your life so that your life is actually changing, which of course is the goal of God's Word, is so that we'll change, not just so that we'll be better educated sinners. We will be better educated sinners, but we also want to be transformed sinners who are increasingly becoming more like Jesus Christ. So the discussion questions are usually uh, your opinions or your thoughts about the text. When it gets to going deeper, it's usually about how your life is being shaped by the text. Now, you'll notice on the going deeper questions this week, we're simply asking you if you're willing to commit yourself for this study of Romans. We hope you will. We're so glad you're here today. And uh, there's still, you know, there's still, I see some seats. So if you want to bring some of your friends next week or the week after, bring them too. And the question will be this, are you going to persevere? Are you going to stay with it through the year and study Romans from beginning to end? The reason I ask that is that Romans is very important, as we're going to see, and every part of it is important, and it all hangs together. So I'd like to recommend to you to think about committing yourself for these nine months of study to get through this book and really feel like you understand it and have begun to apply it in a new way. Now, those of you, a few of you who are here 20 years ago, remember, we started with a study of Romans. Well, this will be my last full year teaching Amen because I've announced my retirement as senior minister at 2nd, uh, February 2017. So I want to end with you in Romans. And it looks like we have some fancy new text out here by John Stott. Actually, that's the exact text we used 20 years ago. It just has a new cover on it. So, and you didn't even remember, which is the whole point. It won't hurt you to go through it again. Uh, I looked at several commentaries that we might use as a text and uh, I toyed especially with one other, but I kept coming back to Stott because he does go through verse by verse and gives you a good, clear exposition of the text. And there aren't a whole lot of pages. There were a lot for today. But generally speaking, there are not a lot of pages for each week. But if you'll read them before you get here, I think you'll find that you're ready to dig in at a little bit deeper level when we start studying in the group. So get the Stott text. And then we also, you, and, and see if you can keep up with the assignments each week. And then uh, 
for those of you who don't have an ESV, English Standard Version Study Bible, you can pick those up uh, at the uh, bookmark uh, at a discounted rate here. Uh, I don't think that we had those available today. Uh, but those of you who have been in Amen before, you, you know that we use the ESV Study Bible. And I just refer to page numbers there to make it easy for you. And there are also some study documents, even one that we'll be referring to today, that you'll find very useful. So if you want to pick up an ESV Study Bible, and then you have Stott as your uh, text, those are the only books you'll need uh, for the year. Uh, so here we go. Let's, let's look at the text. Let's begin. We're going to look, begin right at the beginning, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. Now remember that we said that uh, Romans is a letter, and therefore a letter has this structure. It begins with a salutation, and then it goes into the body of what the writer wants to say in the letter, and then it, it closes uh, with just a regular closing. So it's real simple. But in uh, Greek and uh, Latin, uh, epistolary or letter form, it's always that way. You start off uh, not by saying, dear so-and-so, but you start off with your own name. I, Sandy, am writing to you. And in that salutation, you get several components. You get who the sender is, who the receiver is, you get a general uh, brief salutation and then often a prayer to the gods or a blessing from the gods. That's the way that the a Roman or Greek salutation would go. You'll find that Paul's just using common Greco-Roman salut uh, epistolary form and his letter begins with a salutation just like any letter you'd receive in the mail uh, would begin in those days. So that helps us understand why Paul starts the way he does. And it's, it's very helpful to see in the scriptures the writers were writing using common forms. And we know that the New Testament is written in Greek, and it was written in a particular type of Greek called koine, or common Greek. It wasn't the high classical Greek of the academicians. It was the common Greek. And so what you'll find often is common language, common forms that people like us can understand. It wasn't written for the philosophers. The Bible was written for common people like you and me. So Paul starts off just using a common letter form because he's writing a letter to some Christians in another city, people he's not met yet in Rome. He, Paul's never been to Rome, but he's writing to people who are believers in Jesus Christ in Rome, and we'll see why he writes to them in just a moment. But I want us to think about why this letter is so important. And through the years, it has been used massively in various people's lives. If you go back to the early centuries, a man named Chrysostom says that Romans is Paul's spiritual trumpet. What a great phrase. So we're looking at Romans, we're looking at Paul taking the trumpet and uh, blasting out and announcing the spiritual truths that are essential for real human flourishing. Martin Luther called it truly the purest gospel. So what we get in Romans is the purest explanation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you'll see why here in the next several weeks. And then John Calvin said about it, that it is an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. What Calvin was saying, if you understand Romans, if you can get your mind around Romans, Romans opens up your mind to understand the entirety of the Bible and all of its books, that it's kind of the gateway 
into understanding the rest of the Bible. And once again, I think even today with some comments we'll make, you'll see how the Romans does that. It introduces you to the rest of the Bible. Now, there's no part of the Bible that's more inspired than any other part of the Bible. <laughs> okay, So uh, we don't want to suggest that there's a canon within the canon or there's something that's more biblical than other Bible books. But what Paul is saying, or what Calvin is saying here, is that just intellectually and logically, Romans will help you frame up your understanding of the gospel of God in a way that makes sense out of all the other books of the Bible. And then John Stott, if you happen to have read him, he said that Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. Fullest, plainest, grandest statement of the gospel. John Stott, I don't know if you, if you know who he is, he recently died, well, several years ago, uh, but he was the rector of All Souls Church in London, England, uh, and just a tremendous statesman and commentator on the scriptures for years and years. Uh, and I think people around the world look to him for his teaching. He's saying, boys, here it is, the plainest, the uh, grandest statement of the gospel. And then uh, let me mention Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who uh, some of you will know is a great literary critic in England, a uh, great Shakespeare scholar. Uh, some in his own day in the 19th century considered him the greatest literary critic in, in England. And what he said about Romans is, it is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. That's quite a statement. The profoundest piece of writing in existence? That's what Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the great literary scholar, said about Romans. And we know, of course, that Romans has been the book that has led to the conversion of some uh, wonderful uh, leaders through the centuries. Uh, St. Augustine, you remember, may remember, when he was running away from his mama and she was crying like crazy uh, for him. She was concerned about him. He runs off uh, from uh, Hippo, Africa, uh, across the Mediterranean, he gets to Milan, and there, while he's sitting hungover, uh, he hears a boys' choir. And the boys' choir is singing, Tole lege, tole lege, take up and read. And there just happened to be a copy of the scriptures next to Augustine. He picked it up and opened it up right to, to Romans 13. And he read there and was immediately converted. Uh, God has used Romans in a wonderful way. Of course, Luther the same way. When Luther discovered what the righteousness of God really is, and we'll get into that, because this is at the heart of Romans. What is the righteousness of God, and how do I attain it? And when Luther understood that he attained it through faith, it just changed his life. And, of course, Wesley, uh, he says his heart was strangely warmed. Some people think that's when he was actually converted. He was in a group, Bible study group, and they were just reading Luther's introduction to Romans. And Wesley has this profound spiritual experience that ended up changing the colonies and all the Western world. So Romans has affected a lot of lives, and I think our prayer uh, during uh, these weeks together is that it will affect our lives too. Well, let's read then the first seven verses, and let's expect God to work in our lives in these days together. There's a lot to look at here. So I'm, I know I'm talking fast, but you know, studies show that the human brain can actually uh, think seven times faster than the speech uh, of the fastest talker. So uh, I know you can keep up with me. Let's, here we go. <laughs> Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you can see from what we've said, Paul's using first century epistolary form, but boy, does he ever chock it full of theological and spiritual significance. Let's start off by looking at this. The gospel messenger is divinely appointed. This is really important about the gospel, that the one who gives us the gospel, the apostle himself, is divinely appointed. Now let's look at, look at what he says about himself. First of all, his name, Paul. He was Saul until he became a Christian, and then he got the name Paul. And he is a very unlikely candidate to be the messenger of the gospel of God. Why is he unlikely? Well, Paul, as you know, was exquisitely trained uh, at the university in Tarsus. We could call it university. He was trained in Tarsus, which was no mean city, as he says. He was a Roman citizen, but also a Jew. And as a Jew, he also was very serious in his Bible study and his theological studies. He studied at the, foot of, at the feet of the famous rabbi Gamaliel that you, of course, know from the Scriptures in Acts. Paul studied from him. He was his uh, protege. So Paul was very well trained in a secular uh, and pagan philosophy, and you see it coming out in his writings, actually, his knowledge of contemporary literature and ancient literature. And Paul also was very well trained in Judaistic studies. But Paul was a violent opponent of Christianity. He saw the followers of Christ as those who were heretics, who had divided off from the true faith of Judaism, and he was out to destroy them. You remember that when he was converted, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians because they were Christians and to have them imprisoned and some of them put to death. You'll also remember that when Stephen was stoned to death, Paul felt very honored to be holding the garments of those who were throwing the stones. And he approved of the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the church. Paul was, Paul was a religious bigot and he was a religious terrorist. Now we have plenty of those in the Middle East right now. Paul was one of them in his own day. And so sometimes, you know, you think you know, <clears throat> these immigrants, you know, coming up from Syria don't want to have anything to do with them. Boy, those Hungarians are exactly right. Keep those immigrants out because you know what? There's some ISIS people in among all those immigrants and they're trying to infiltrate. I understand all that and we need our government agencies to investigate and try to screen those people out. But here's the fact of the matter. Probably several of our big leaders who are going to advance the cause of humankind and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ are going to be former terrorists. And let me tell you something. I happen to know that a good number of them have already become Christians. And I expect more of them to become Christians. So if we're not willing to share the gospel with those who are putting us to death because we're Christians, we're going to leave out some of the most important leaders in the future of the church. The early believers didn't want anything to do with Saul. Even when he became a Christian, Ananias, you know, was told to go over there and, and minister to Paul and baptize him and so on. Ananias argued with the Lord and said, Lord, I'm not going to go over there. Don't you, 
Lord, do you know about this man? Uh, and he, you know, he started to give the Lord a few lessons about who Saul was and what he was up to. And the Lord basically had to chase Ananias and tell him to go and obey him. And so with us. So, yeah, we're terrified. Yes, there are people trying to destroy us, and they're going to make some great Christians. Stick at it. So Paul was a very unlikely messenger of the gospel. He seemed to be anything but someone who could communicate the gospel. He was absolutely opposed to the gospel in every way. Notice, though, secondly, Paul is a devoted servant of Jesus Christ. Now, this word servant, uh, I really think uh, another word is better used here because there are two words in Greek uh, for servant and slave. There's a word for servant uh, that often is used for, for the, it's the word deacon, and then there's the word for slave. This is the word for slave. So Paul is actually saying, I'm an indentured slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen, therefore he was free. He was not to be enslaved by anybody as a Roman citizen. He had rights. He was a free man. He was actually very proud of it, and he used his freedom in his ministry. But Paul is saying here that I have become voluntarily a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ because what Paul is, teaches us elsewhere, he actually found his freedom by being a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, every one of us here is a slave to somebody or something. You're a slave to those things that you love. You're a slave sometimes to your lusts and to your pride, to your ego. Paul says, I want to be a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way he described himself. Look, the first thing he says about himself, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. That defines everything when you know the life of the Apostle Paul. How about you? How would you define yourself? That's the way he does it. He's a devoted servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is writing from Corinth. He's on his third missionary journey. And if you remember, he's taken a collection in Corinth and other places to take back to the oppressed Jews in Jerusalem. Paul is, on, is getting ready to make his journey to Jerusalem, but before he does that, and of course you know as a result of that trip, that's when he gets imprisoned and held in prison in Caesarea for years and then taken to Rome to uh, appeal to the emperor during which he has the shipwreck. But Paul is now in Corinth getting ready to make that trip to Jerusalem when he writes this letter in 57 A.D. And Paul has been in Corinth, and he's been opposed by many people. He's been opposed by the Jewish synagogue. He's been opposed by the civil authorities. He's been uh, beaten and left for dead in some of his previous journeys. He's had all kinds of difficult experiences. But the Apostle Paul is saying, I am his slave. Paul is completely devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you really want to understand the gospel, it's not just an intellectual affair. It has to be understood by your giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you give your life to Him and come into submission under Him, then you begin to understand. The Christian experience is an experience. It's an intellectual experience to be sure, but it's not only an intellectual experience. It's a moral and spiritual experience that you can only have if you put yourself at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ as His slave. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying about himself. Some of you may know T.S. Eliot once said that the greatest proof of Christianity is not how far a man can rationally uh, argue his reasons for belief, but how far in practice he will actually stake his life on what he believes. That's the greatest proof of Christianity. It is you're staking 
life on what you believe. That's what the Apostle Paul did. But then notice thirdly about Paul, uh, not only his name and his background and his devotion, but he is commissioned. He's commissioned by God. He's called to be an apostle. This word calling is very important. We'll come back to it in a moment because you'll see in the later verses we read, this word called is used twice to refer to you, to the believers, the believers who are in Rome. But Paul, first of all, says, I was called to be an apostle. He was called out by Christ himself. Now, Paul calls himself here an apostle. The word apostle, apostello in Greek, just means to send. And Paul is one who is sent. There is an apostle with a little a, like, for example, missionaries today are apostles. They're just sent to other nations and other cultures to share the gospel. But then there's an apostle with a capital A. And let me talk about those for a moment. Because those apostles, they have now died and gone to heaven and there are no more apostles after them. Apostle with a capital A is what Paul's saying he is. He is called personally by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. That was the first requirement to be an apostle is that you had to have a personal commissioning or calling by Jesus Christ. And you'll find that it's true not only with Peter, Paul, but with Peter, with James, with John. They were all personally called to be apostles by Jesus Christ. Secondly, an apostle with a capital A had to be one who had been an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. An eyewitness. So as John says in his first epistle, we saw him with our eyes, we touched him with our hands, we heard him with our own ears. We, we're eyewitnesses, we're personal uh, witnesses of his resurrection. So when we have the apostolic text in the Bible, and by the way, the New Testament is written by these eyewitnesses or their closest mates. For example, Luke was a very close partner of Paul. So some of the books were written by Luke or by John Mark who were accompanying apostles, but almost all the books of the New Testament are written by eyewitnesses, apostles. And they had, by Christ, the uh, power to speak infallibly and authoritatively to the church. So they had a unique office. They were eyewitnesses. They were called personally by Jesus Christ. And then Paul adds another uh, qualification. In 2 Corinthians, he says, he speaks of signs and wonders who marked out the apostles. So Paul could say, you, know, you Corinthians know that I'm an apostle because you saw signs and wonders. The apostles healed people. Uh, the apostles were able to do miraculous signs and wonders. Christ identified them, gave them their badge of uh, credibility by enabling them to do signs and wonders, not at the same rate or frequency that Jesus did, frankly. Uh, Jesus performed about 33 miracles that are recorded in the Gospels, and the apostles you'll find about 10. So it wasn't the same volume or frequency of miracles, but nonetheless, they were marked out by the ability to, to perform signs and wonders. This is how we know who the apostles are, and they have authority to speak to the church. And therefore, when we hear the word of the apostle, what we're really hearing is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God coming through apostles. That's the reason that when we read the text, you may say accurately, hey, this was just written by the apostle Paul. It's just Paul. Well, you know, and you can say, well, I, and I, you know, I prefer the Sermon on the Mount because that's the word of Jesus. But what Paul is saying is, no, Jesus is speaking through me. I am 
his infallible emissary. So if you're listening to Jesus, you will definitely listen to his apostles whom he personally commissioned and gave authority to speak to us. So that's the reason that the Bible is the word of God because Jesus commissioned it all. That's what Paul is saying about himself. And then fourthly, he's sanctified or set apart for the gospel of God. His whole life is set apart for the gospel. And uh, here, of course, we, we know that everything about the Apostle Paul was used for the advantage of the church and for the glory of God, whether it's his academic training, his religious training, his personality, his massive intelligence, his ability to persuade and argue, all of these tremendous skills and talents that he had are honed by God, and God has prepared him even before he was converted. God was giving the apostle certain talents and experiences so that he could be an effective apostle for the church. This life is amazing. Apostle Paul will come back to him later. But he, uh, through his life, he went from city to city in Asia and in Europe as well, and in cities that had no church. Paul went there and evangelized in these major cities that were tremendously challenging. If you think that New York City or Boston or Seattle or Memphis are challenging cities to preach the gospel, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just going into Corinth and looking at the huge temple of Apollos, the moment you walk into that city and it's just dominated by pagan religion and by pagan philosophy. And Paul holds up all by himself the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, I... I want to know nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. And he preaches Christ crucified. And there some people begin to believe from Jewish and Roman backgrounds uh, and Gentile backgrounds and begin to form a little church there in Corinth. And Paul is writing from there where this little church has been established in this massive secular or pagan city. And Paul is now writing to the Roman Christians. And he, it doesn't matter how wicked the city is or how needy it is. Paul is absolutely confident that the gospel of Jesus Christ is exactly what's needed, and that's what he's doing. So first of all, we see that the gospel messenger is divinely appointed. We have Paul because Christ gave us Paul, and he is Christ's emissary. He's quite aware of it. We need to be aware of it too. Now, secondly, notice about the gospel that the gospel message is divinely revealed. Paul goes to great pains in Galatians chapter 1 to explain, I did not make this thing up. Neither did I receive it from some other person. This is not a religion that got passed down to me. No, I received it directly by revelation from God himself. So when Paul was on the road to Damascus, other people were aware of the gospel. Paul hadn't really heard it clearly yet, but he gets it straight from God. And his point is that I'm giving you a message that is not a humanly devised religion. Other religions are, frankly. They may be ancient. They may be highly revered. They may be cherished by many millions of people. But they're made up by people. Paul says this one uniquely is not made up by people. It's revealed by God himself. And you say, well, others have, have made the same claim about their religion. Well, let's look and see which do you think is really telling you the truth. And I'd like for you to make up your mind as we study this book during this year. But the message is divinely revealed. Now, let's think for a moment what this message is that Paul is revealing. And let me talk for just a moment about Paul's basic idea that's in Romans. 
what is the body of the message that's going to follow this salutation? Paul has, I would say, three levels of concern. And let me give those to you. And as we go through Romans, I think you'll see how this makes sense. First of all, Paul is concerned, first of all, theologically, that his hearers understand the core of the gospel. And the core of the gospel, you know, the gospel, good, the gospel just means good news. So the gospel is an announcement. From the four gospels in the New Testament, we know that this announcement is about a kingdom. That Jesus Christ is the king and a new kingdom is being inaugurated. So the gospel is, in its essence, an announcement about a new kingdom that has come and is still coming and will be consummated one day soon. The problem is the kingdom has been announced, but we're enemies of the kingdom. So we've got a major problem. We've been sinning against this king all of our lives, and all of our mothers and fathers have been too. So the whole human race is hostile to the new king. That's the problem. The good news continues. Not only is there a new kingdom coming, but he's offered ransom for anyone who wants to be relieved of the burden of their sin. So if you want to be reconciled to this king, there's a way to be reconciled. Ah, that's good news. Question, how do I do it? He says, look, it's going to be hard for you to believe this, but the penalty that, is, that you owe because of your sin has been paid by the king himself. I know this makes no sense to anybody who understands kings. I mean, the last thing the king is going to do is offer his life to die. You're going to be the sucker that dies for his glory. He's not going to die. But in this kingdom, the magical announcement is this king has actually laid down his life for you to pay for your sins against God himself so that you can be accepted and loved in the kingdom. So he's offering a free forgiveness to anyone who will receive it in this kingdom. There's, we're getting close to the heart of the gospel. And the very heart of it is when this king laid down his life, what he did was he laid it down as a substitute for you. And when you simply believe in him, that is to trust what he has done for you, you are thereby justified, made acceptable to God and to the king. There's the heart of the gospel. Paul wants to be sure to this Romans, Roman church that he's not met yet as a church. He's met some of the individuals, but he has not met the church yet. He's saying, I want you to understand this gospel. Now, anybody who reads Romans knows that it is what we call antithetical. That is, he's arguing with somebody. There's an argument going on here. He's, you can feel him. He's fighting. He's passionate. He's arguing with somebody. The problem with getting a letter or having a letter is that it's like listening to your wife on the phone with hearing only her side of the conversation, and you're trying to figure out what is that conversation all about. And all you hear is your wife talking. So you have a general idea of what it's about, but you're not real sure, you're not positive who she was talking to or what the other party was saying. And that's the way it is when you get a, a letter in the New Testament. You know what Paul is saying, but you're not quite sure what the other party is saying, and you're trying to figure that out. That's part of what Bible study does. We're able to speculate, sometimes fairly accurately, about what the opponent was saying. In Romans, it seems fairly clear to most people, although there's some debates today, maybe we can talk about those, 
But generally speaking, it seems clear to most people, and you'll get this from Stott, that the other side of the argument, the ones that Paul is arguing with, are those who largely have the Jewish background, who are used to saying we find ourselves acceptable to God because we keep His, His law, and particularly the Sabbath, circumcision, the food laws, and other rituals that the Jewish people have. That's what makes us part of the community of God. It's our works of righteousness. Paul's basic argument, and, the, and, and it's this almost a legal brief that he's filing here, he's showing systematically how that Jewish Judaistic way of thinking doesn't work. That if you think you're going to make yourself acceptable to God by, based on what you do, you may have led 10,000 people to Christ. Paul is saying, that's not going to get you into heaven. You say, really? Yes. And if we're going to follow his argument systematically as to why that doesn't work. Then when you get to Romans 3, he says, but thanks be to God, there is a way that does work. You say, well, please tell me, because if you can't get to heaven by leading 10,000 people to Christ, I sure would like to know how you get there. And he says, there's been a righteousness of God revealed from heaven that's by faith. You say, really? That simple? Yes. This is Paul's big argument. That the gospel, the good news is that you find total acceptance by God as an heir of all the riches of eternal life simply by trusting in Him, Jesus Christ, in the blood that He shed instead of your blood being shed for your own sin. There's the heart of the gospel. Now, when you get through Romans 4, you've had that explained to you. Then when you pick up with Romans 5, he begins to show how that understanding of, of the gospel leads to a certainty that we're going to get to heaven safely. Oh, that's going to be good news. Yeah. So he says, now that we have, we've been justified, we have peace with God. And now we have hope of eternal life. And so from Romans 5 through Romans 8, he's showing you the the key implication of this method of salvation is that you can be sure you're going to make it all the way home. So in Romans 1 through 8, you get the core theological presentation. And it has many implications. That's the reason we spend you know, half of this year just looking at Romans 1 through 8. To understand the meaning of this salvation, it has many practical applications for your home life, your business life, your church life, your community life. But now when we come to Romans 9 through 11, we come to the second concern of the Apostle Paul. And it is one of the major implications of this gospel. In 9 through 11, he shows that since we are justified this way and this way alone, then it doesn't matter whether you have a Jewish background or a Gentile background. It doesn't matter whether you're Muslim or you grew up in the Catholic Church. It doesn't matter whether you have an Eastern Hindu background or you're a Western secularist. Nobody has prominence in the church. The Jews don't have prominence because they're the ancient people of God, and the Gentiles don't have prominence because they're so wise and no philosophy. He says, no, because we all come at the foot of the cross, we're all brothers. And what we see in 9 through 11 is the greatest division in all of history, that of Jew and Gentile, is brought together as family, brothers and sisters in Christ, and he works that out for us in Romans 9 through 11. So you see, there's not only a theological principle, Romans 1 through 8, but now there's a sociological principle, Romans 9 through 11. Now when you get to 12, he picks back up then with the, another implication of the gospel, and that is it leads to a holy and useful life. 
and we'll look at very practical ways of demonstrating the love of Christ, submitting to civil magistrates, loving one another, even with our, our ethical disagreements from time to time in Romans 14. We'll discuss all of that. Paul shows how the gospel works out into a lovely ethical lifestyle that brings us into unity with one another. Now, when you get to Romans 15, you get the third major concern of the Apostle Paul. The first one is theological. The second one is sociological, that we're a family regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, and so on. But the third concern in Romans 15 is missiological. And there Paul shows us one of the key reasons that he's writing this letter to Rome. Why does he write this extensive and magisterial description of the gospel to this church he's never met? Well, you find out in Romans 15, he's writing so that they understand the gospel because that's the very gospel that he intends to take to Spain. And one reason he's going to come to Rome is to solicit their prayer support and their money to provide for him a staging ground, much like Antioch in Syria was for his first three missionary journeys. Now he's looking for his next staging ground to deploy himself and his partners into Spain to take the gospel to further reaches in Europe. So fundamentally then, Romans is also a missionary prayer letter. Paul's explaining himself and his message and how it works out in the church so that they then can know this is the message that needs to go to Spain. So Paul is appealing in Romans, once we understand the gospel and how it applies to us, to understand that it applies to the whole world. And we have to be the ones to get it to the whole world. So this is a magnificent book that sort of encapsulates all the implications that we can think of of the gospel. Now, let's look at uh, verses 2 through 5. And notice in verse 2, first of all, this is foretold by God's prophets. Now, I mentioned here, and you can look back in pages 2608, 2608, in your ESV study Bible, and you'll see there the quotations from the Old Testament that you find in the New Testament. You know what I did? I just counted. How many of those are in Romans? You know how many there are? 77. That tells you something. Paul cannot describe the gospel of Jesus Christ without showing how this comes out of the Old Testament. So the gospel is not new to the New Testament. Isaiah spoke of the gospel on several occasions. He used the word, in Hebrew of course, for the gospel. He foretold the gospel. And what you have with the Romans, Paul, remember, was, is Jewish, and he was well studied in the Old Testament. I'm sure he had major portions of the Old Testament memorized word for word. He was a scholar of the first order of the Old Testament. And the way he had understood the Old Testament was by the teachings of the rabbis, Gamaliel being the chief one. Well, what did the rabbis teach? Well, the Old Testament is about the restoration of the nation of Israel. And one day, the prophets foretell, there's coming a day when Israel will be delivered from all their enemies, including the Romans, and they will be reestablished as the great nation on the world, in the world. And the great son of David, one of his line, will take the throne again in this monarch, this new monarchy of the great nation of Israel. God's promise, one day, he'll do that for the Jewish nation. That was a rabbinical understanding of what the Old Testament taught. You'll remember that after Paul's conversion, 
he goes immediately after he tries to evangelize a little bit and gets into big trouble. He then goes into the wilderness, and we don't hear another thing from him for about 14 to 17 years. Now, what do you think he's doing in the wilderness for 14 years? You know what he's doing? Studying his Bible from the perspective of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's studying the Old Testament, which was the Bible he had. He was studying the Old Testament in depth again to try to understand it as it really is. And what he understood then, of course, this whole Old Testament is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom I met in all of his resplendent glory on the road to Damascus. So when Paul goes out into the wilderness, he's redoing all of his theology. Some of us need to do that too, you know. Redo your theology, your understanding of the Bible and of all reality in view of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of all creation and the King of redemption. So what Paul does, he replaces the Talmud, if you will, or all the rabbinical training, he replaces it with what we now have as the New Testament. So Paul becomes our rabbi, and we're learning from the rabbi, not Gamaliel, in old Judaistic understanding of the Old Testament, but now we're looking at the New Testament, which shows us what the Old Testament was really talking about. So Paul is clear to say here, in Romans 3, and on other occasions, that this, is exact, this gospel of Jesus Christ is exactly what the Old Testament prophets were talking about. This is the true Old Testament religion. It's fulfilled in the New Testament religion. So they're one religion. And he's basically saying those who don't see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament massively misunderstand the Old Testament. And they don't have the religion of God because God's word in the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, when Jesus was here, that's exactly what he taught, that everything points to him. Now notice, not only is it foretold in the prophets, but it's focused on God's Son. What is the New Testament about? Jesus. And you find the name Jesus 37 times in Romans. You find the name Christ, which means Messiah, 66 times. And notice that focused on God's Son, what about God's Son? Number one is human genealogy. And he says, concerning his son who is descended from David. This is the Davidic king. The rabbis expected the Davidic king immediately to liberate the Romans politically and militarily. Paul said they missed it. The Davidic king is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who lays down his life for his people and dies on our behalf. The rabbis missed it. And he says, Jesus Christ is the son of David. And you'll find, where does the New Testament begin? Matthew chapter 1. What's the point? Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Noah. He's, he's the one who has promised, the promised seed that was to come. And then notice, secondly, uh, about Jesus, his divine sonship. He is the son of God, and he's been declared that way by his resurrection. Now, by his resurrection, we know that he's not only fully human and the Davidic promised king, but he is fully divine. He is God himself incarnate in flesh. That's what Paul is saying. The resurrection proves that to a watching world who will just use their noggin and admit the obvious. that You, you can't be resurrected in glory like that unless you be the Son of God as promised. And then thirdly, what about him? He's our Lord. He's the master. Paul said he's a slave. If he's a slave, who's the master? Jesus is the master. He's the Lord. So Paul says, let me define myself. I'm an indentured bond slave. 
Let me define Jesus. He is the master of the universe. And brothers, that defines everything. If you can get that straight, you're in good shape. So Paul says the gospel message is divinely revealed. Notice also it's designed for God's purposes in verse 5 in three ways. First of all, it's designed for spiritual fruit through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Scholars debate, does he mean the obedience which is faith or does he mean an obedience that grows from faith? I say both. Paul is saying the gospel is meant not just to make you feel better, it is to transform your life. Paul is seeking to proclaim the gospel to raise up obedient slaves like himself to the master, Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does. And notice, secondly, its most important function is to glorify God. It's for the sake of His name. So when we are converted and transformed, guess who gets the glory? The Lord Jesus Christ. So when you give your life to Him, it's the most wonderful thing you can do for His glory as well as for your own good. It's a wonderful thing to know that what's good for you is also glorifying to Him. Thirdly, notice that it's among all the nations. So this gospel is designed for all the nations. And, of course, Paul, uh, Jesus makes this point in the Great Commission. They were to make disciples of all nations, not converts, but disciples, people who are following Jesus from every nation in the world. This is crucial to the Apostle Paul. As you can see from his outline, he has a missiological intent here. He's, sh he's showing that the gospel is meant to bring obedience to the Master from all ethnic groups in the world. So if we love the Lord... We want to go throughout all the world and proclaim the gospel to raise up disciples, followers for him. Now, thirdly, we're going to, in case you hadn't noticed, we're moving quickly. The gospel, the gospel people are divinely called. Divinely called. And what are we called to do? To belong to Jesus. Do you see how simple this is? Paul was called miraculously and personally to be an apostle. Do you realize you're called just as miraculously and just as personally? You are. Every believer is called personally and infallibly by the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not called to be an apostle. There are only 13 of them. But you are called to be in union with Jesus Christ. And you'll notice later on you're also called to be saints, to be holy ones who are set apart for His purposes. That's it mean, what it means to be a saint, set apart. Set apart for what? His service. Just like Paul was set apart for the gospel, you're set apart to walk with Jesus. That's your whole vocation. You thought your vocation was to be a banker or a salesman or a lawyer or a doctor. That's not your vocation. That's your occupation. Your vocation is to belong to Jesus Christ. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. So vocation is a calling. And there are only two callings in the Bible. One is to be an apostle like the, Paul, like the apostle Paul. The other calling is to be a Christian. And if you're following him, you've got the only calling there is. And your occupation is determined by inference, hopefully spirit-guided inference, prayerfully determined inference, but it's by inference. You don't have a voice from heaven infallibly telling you to be a banker. You may think you did, but the infallible voice you have from heaven is to be a Christian. And out of being a Christian then, you determine how best you can serve as a bond slave, the Lord Jesus Christ, in which occupation. And you choose that occupation. And that's the way occupation is determined. But your vocation is to belong to Jesus. And notice, to all those in Rome, B, you remain in this world. You're in Memphis. You're called to be a saint right here. 
in this city. Some of you think you can't live a Christian life unless you go out somewhere and just isolate yourself on some island in the Pacific. No. You're supposed to do it right here where it's tough, just like they were doing it right there in Rome with all the pagan gods and while they were being persecuted as Christians. You do it here in Memphis. And notice this, to be loved by God. We're called to be the receptacles of the love of God. We are to be the people who display what it's like to be beloved by the deity. Try that on for size. That's your job today. Your calling is to go out there and demonstrate to everybody what it's like to be accepted and loved and, and uh, cherished by God. Now, fourthly and lastly, the gospel blessings are divinely given, and you'll see that the gospel does bless grace to you and peace. We'll talk more about those uh, in the days to come. Peace with God, peace of God, peace with neighbor, and peace with the created order. Peace everywhere. You begin to taste it now as an hors d'oeuvre. And later on the full meal comes when Jesus Christ returns in all of his glory and the wolf lies down with the lamb and the child crawls over the hole of the snake, as Isaiah said. Peace with all the created order. We're beginning to experience that peace now when we come to Christ. It's going to come in its fullness later. And Paul says in his salutation, this is his blessing, grace and peace to you. And then he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the peace that I, Paul, can give you. No, the peace that God alone can give you. And Jesus says, peace I give to you. Not like the world gives to you. I don't give the peace that they give that's you know, by drugs or alcohol or a lot of sex or you know, a lot of money. No, I give you peace that endures to eternal life. So that's the blessing of the gospel. The gospel not only is from God, but it brings great blessings from God. And so I commend the gospel of the Apostle Paul, more importantly, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to you with your clicking notebooks on your way to work this morning. Let's pray together. That, by the way, don't you wish you had those in church on Sunday? You could just start clicking them. That's the reason we don't give notebooks out on Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this great, great gospel and for this wonderful letter of Romans. We pray that as we diligently study in the weeks ahead that the gospel may become more real to us and more powerfully displayed in and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.